The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Now, in late July, we had Blake Lemoyne on the show. He is, of course, the Google engineer who believed the chatbot that he was speaking with, Lambda, was sentient. This week, we're going to bring on a different perspective. Gary Marcus is the author of Rebooting AI. He's one of the most influential voices in the AI field, the founder of Geometric Intelligence, which was acquired by Uber. Uh, And he wrote that Lemoyne's perspective was uh, nonsense on stilts, to quote his post on Substack, um, word for word. So we're going to get into that. We're going to talk a little bit about what you can actually do with the Lambda technology, why he doesn't think it's sentience, what it might take you know, to actually get to sentience, what that actually means, different perspective than, than Blake had. And of course, we'll go into the state of AI today because it does seem like the field is booming. And uh, it'll be fun to discuss what is happening in it with Gary and maybe hear a little bit of a different perspective than you hear typically. So with that, I want to welcome Gary to the show. Welcome, Gary. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, I definitely want to get into the Lemoyne stuff. People who listen to the show, um, you know, basically listen to an hour and a half of him, you know, speak about his interactions with Lambda uh, with me. And uh, I, I thought it was pretty fascinating. Obviously, the, the conversation doesn't end there. But before we get there, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Last week, there was this really interesting uh, situation at a Colorado State Fair where this guy, Jason M. Allen, entered an AI-drawn painting into the art contest there and actually won first place. And it's caused this whole big controversy among artists saying that he's a cheater and he's like, I'm not backing down. I followed the rules. Curious what you make of the whole situation. What do you think it says about AI that you know now people can use a prompt. He basically said, you know, draw this and the AI drew it. So what do you think it means that people can just use a prompt and now it's winning human art contests? I think we're in a whole new world on that score. You know, later we'll talk about <clears throat> some of my skepticism in using AI for some purposes, but there's no question that you can get a whole breed of recent software to draw amazing paintings or things that look like paintings. And society has to sort out what it thinks about it. I mean, it's sort of like a performance enhancing drug, right? Right. And it's untraceable in general. You know, I, I don't, I don't know the details in this particular case and how people found out, but in, in general, people are going to be able to use these techniques in, you know, the 1970s, people started using drum machines uh, and started doing all kinds of stuff with electronic music. And now, you know, in, in the studio, if you're doing music, you can, you know, change notes to make them have the right pitch. You can change the timing in subtle ways and stuff like that. Um, in general, in music, we just care what we hear. And we don't really care how mm-hmm. the sausage was made as long as it's entertaining. And maybe people will take that attitude in art. Maybe they'll they'll be upset about it. You know, my expertise is really in what can the AI do and not so much in the ethics of attribution and so forth. Right. If we talk about another domain like language synthesis, it turns out that current systems can make very convincing language, but it's often bullshit. That doesn't matter in the same way in art. So in if you have an, a system make up a news story, 
even if it's trying to be truthful, it'll probably drop in some stuff that isn't true. And, you know, we expect our news stories to be true. In the case of these artworks, if the thing doesn't do what you want it to do, you can say, well, I was just trying to be surrealist or whatever. There's no fact of the matter the way that there might be in an essay. And so then it's up to society, you know, how, how do you want to treat these things? They are going to extend the reach of artists just the way that, you know, having a track tape extended what the Beatles could do. I mean, somebody might have said, somebody probably did say, you know, you can't do this in a live performance. Well, what is this? Like they're using the studio as an instrument now that, you know, some people will make that argument uh, around computers. I don't have a strong stake there. I'm happy to tell you, you know, what I think is plausible and where the systems might break. Um, I don't think I'm qualified to say, you know, should this be legit? I think that's probably going to depend on what you want your competition to be about. Right. But, you know, you're living in the world of AI every day. So, you know, I think that like we'll get into some of the other stuff, but it is interesting to hear your perspective on this stuff. One more question on that. The guy wins the art contest, but his art is actually, you know, AI drawing a painting based off of all this other paintings uh, that it's ingested. Is that original work? Where do you, what do you mean? You know, where do you fall on that? There, the analogy is a little bit to sampling and it's an, it's almost like a sampling on steroids. So, you know, we, we have licensing requirements in music and so forth. And people do, you know, they'll drop in a a sample from an old police song or something like that. Mm. Um, and they'll have to pay royalties for it and so forth. And what these systems are doing is kind of like a amazing enhanced version of sampling where you don't even recognize what the samples are anymore. It's all derivative. Now, you know, there are always arguments about this in the arts anyway, like Dylan will say, there's nothing new under the sun. And I just mm-hmm. put it together in a new way. Um, it reaches a different level where a system might have access to 600 million pictures and, it's difficult for the artist to say what is the relation between those 600 million pictures that this system saw and the thing that I got out of it when I gave it a prompt. I said, you know, draw me a, a picture of a piano keyboard with clouds around it. And the system is drawing on this database of existing, you know, clouds and pianos and, and, and so forth. And we really don't know the relation. Of course, we don't know that with a human artist either, but there is certainly you know, copyright questions to consider. And it's worth realizing that the art system doesn't really understand what it's doing. It's just correlating words with images in its database. It doesn't have the same intentionality about the objects as a person does, but it can still be a very effective technique. And, you know, it's here and and we're going to have to grapple with it. I think it probably will change art. I think Mm -hmm. in general, that humans are still going to be like the creative inspiration and are often going to be filtering things. So you have the system, it's going to create eight different choices. Maybe the person likes one of them. You never even see the other seven. And so some of it is like, it's like monkeys and typewriters. And then you've got somebody at the other end um, looking at what the monkeys made. And, you know, the monkeys weren't that clever, but, but somebody was clever to pick this one thing that came out of this one monkey's typewriter. And they say, this is great. So it's complicated. I don't know if there's any magical answer, but I do think it's the new reality is um, that AI is going to enhance um, the palette that's available. We had the same kind of questions with Photoshop before, right? I mean, right. so you know, I do photography and I almost never do mm-hmm. anything more than um, tune the color a little bit. There are other people that, you know, the images that they share have been completely 
redesigned. It's it's similar to that, right? You have power there. You can also think of these things a bit analogously to to filters in Photoshop or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're creative tools to push you harder. You always need the human in the loop. You you don't want to just sort of blindly trust that Photoshop is going to give you the result that you want it to give. There's an artist who has an idea about what they want out of this thing. But right. I think it's, you know, it's pretty interesting. Um, it's also interesting that the systems can do as well as they can do without having that much comprehension of the world. And they can do that because they are like parroting essentially um, these massive databases that they've seen before. Right. And, and, you know, these are, these are really interesting points that are sort of relevant to the Lemoyne situation. I don't think anybody would say that the AI artists are sentient. Um, they are responding to commands. They are drawing pictures. However, when you start to deal with AI systems that have, um, you know, that can communicate to humans through words versus pictures, all of a sudden you start to see that. And, you know, I think that um, you've come out strongly saying that Lemoyne, who was the Google engineer who was chatting with Lambda and said it was sentient, was fooled. Um, actually, we'll read, read uh, you know, a bit of your nonsense on Silt's story. Uh, you wrote, neither Lambda nor any of its cousins, GPT-3, are remotely intelligent. Uh, all they do is match patterns, draw from massive statistical databases of human language. These patterns might be cool, but language... Uh, the language these systems utter don't actually mean anything at all, and it sure as hell doesn't mean that these systems are sentient. So I'm curious, like how you how you draw that line, because um, you know, it, obviously the chatbots are producing a, a stunning result, similar to the artists. Where what is your line for saying you know what is sentient and what isn't, and and what would someone have to show you in a chatbot for you to say, okay, maybe this is. First thing to say is sentient can actually mean a bunch of different things. There is one really narrow definition, which is not what I think the conversation was about, which is like a system that can sense something. So Mm -hmm. here's such a system. And on that definition, this is inarguably sentient. This is my Apple Watch. And my Apple Watch has in it sensors that, for example, detect my degree of acceleration. um, And that allows it to track how many minutes I've exercised each day um, because it I mean, it imperfectly understands what I'm doing in the world. If I'm out on a boat, it might think I'm walking because it misinterprets the acceleration forces of the tides. Um, so it's imperfect, but it, it does some sensing. It's true that, you know, the acceleration has moved in this and that way. Um, it also has a microphone. It can do something with that. So, you know, but nobody really thinks seriously in a broader sense of sentience that my Apple Watch is sentient. So um, I don't think what Lemoyne meant is just, Lambda has senses. And in fact, if he did, that would be a foolish place to make the case because Lambda actually has fewer sensors than my watch. My watch has a lot of sensors and Lambda doesn't really have anything sensing the real world except for its linguistic input. Um, and in that sense, Alexa is sentient. Like there are, you know, it's ridiculous, right? That, that's a narrow definition. But if, if you want to do a linguistic analysis, you have to be careful and say that there are different ways of using the term. But w- what I think he was getting at and I, I'll say I didn't have the luxury of having him on my own podcast <laughs> for 90 minutes, but um, I did try to pin him down a little bit on Twitter. And he was very weaselly when I tried to do it. He kept turning it back on me. Um, but it seems to me that what he was implying was something in the realm of conscious and intelligent. And nobody would argue that my watch is conscious. Like, what did that right. even mean? And it's not particularly intelligent, although it does a few things we might associate with intelligence. He was describing something in that. 
um, domain. If you look at the Wikipedia definition of sentience, the, one of the definitions is like the sort of science fictiony one that's like, you know, do alien life forms have sentience? You know, do, mm-hmm. are they conscious? Are they intelligent? And that's clearly what he seemed to mean. And that's what the yeah, conversation was about. He's saying straight up that this thing is a person. Well, there's no question that it's not a person. I mean, that's a ludicrous claim. Um, what it's doing is is repeating things that people have said, and it's not just repeating them. It's a little bit more sophisticated than that. But you know, if you fed into it computer programs, then it would start speaking, so to speak, in the language of computer programs. Right? It's a mimic, is what it is. It's a very talented mimic. Um, the things that it says don't reference either the real world or even an internal construction of reality. So when I talk, I'm talking about the real world. I might get it wrong. I might tell you, I think that there's a cat outside the door and maybe I'll make a mistake, right? I have an internal representation. I think that there's a cat because I hear a certain pattern of footsteps and so forth, but maybe somebody tricked me with a tape recording or something like that. Um, So I don't, my brain doesn't have direct access to the external world. Everything is mediated through my perceptions, but I have a model in my brain of how the external world works. So I'm in a, you know, I'm in my basement, I'm in my house, this house is in British Columbia. And, you know, I understand relations between entities. Um, I understand that I need to pay taxes in a particular place. I I have all these um, beliefs about the world, most of which are accurate. And my language is a connection to that. So if I say I saw my mother last week, I probably did actually see my mother. The word Mm -hmm. mother probably refers to a specific person. And I probably did actually see her. I probably... You know, I could be a sociopath making that up, but I'm probably not. Um, and in fact, I did see my mother last week and earlier this week, and that was great. I hadn't seen her in a while. So, you know, there's physical entity in the real world that corresponds to my mother. And then I have this mental representation. I'm going through this in some depth because when we get to Lambda, Lambda doesn't have a model of the world. So one of the sentences I found most telling in a quick perusal of the transcript was Lemoyne asked it something like, what do you do for fun? And it said something like, I like to spend time with my friends and family and do good deeds for the world. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't have friends and family. It's not referring to some internal representation of who its family is. If you asked it who its family is, it would have to make it up at that point. It's like a complete bullshit artist in that sense. Um, some people might say, well, it just did that to please you, but it doesn't actually even care to please you. All it's doing is predicting in this database of sentences that I've seen if somebody said something like the last sentence, what would the next sentence they say be? Hmm. I think one of the analogies I think I put in that paper was there are some people who play Scrabble in English, but don't actually understand English. They just have memorized a list of English words. And so for them, I think I once saw a phrase, um, these are word tools. They're, they're not words, they're word tools. Well, everything is a word tool um, for Lambda. It's just, you know, the statistics are that this is the next thing I say. So people ask me what I like to do. Well, lots of the answers in this database and the mind reels at what a database of almost a terabyte is. It's a really, really huge, and it's way more than the works of Shakespeare times, I guess, a hundred thousand or a million. There's a much simpler algorithm that's easier to talk about called the nearest neighbor. And you could imagine it would just use nearest neighbor. So nearest neighbor, what it would do, it, was a, it would look through everything it said right now, find the thing that was closest, and then say whatever was said then. And that would work like 70% as well. The, the current technique is a little bit more sophisticated. But it kind of gives you the idea. Imagine you're just finding the closest thing in this massive transcript because 
transcript is so massive, usually you can find something. And usually whatever somebody else said, they were a human. The human did have a model of the world, was understanding the world, and said something that was contextually relevant. So you pull it out of this database. Imagine I'd done the same thing with a spreadsheet. Like people would look at me if I were insane if I said a spreadsheet was sentient. And hmm. rightly so. The spreadsheet's not sentient. It'd be just like, I'm going to add up these columns, add up that column, and I give you the answer that corresponds. And essentially, that's all it's doing. That doesn't mean we could never build an AI system that did have a model of the world, that did reflect on its own model, and so forth. But this one doesn't. You know, if I wanted a candidate for sentience, I would give you the turn-by-turn navigation system in my phone, which Mm. uses accelerometers, um, uses satellite signals in order to build a mental representation of where it is in the world. And then it acts on that mental representation of the world in order to calculate the best way of getting from point A to point B. That's not very sexy. It's not like the most, you know, it's not like it's sitting around eating grapes and contemplating the universe, but my turn by turn system has more elements of what I would actually ascribe sentience than Lambda, which is really just autocomplete on steroids. That's all it is, right? You type in your phone, I will meet you at, and it guesses that, you know, you might say the restaurant because either you or other people have said that before. It's all Lambda is doing is predicting next words and sentences. And it is this massive scale of data that makes it seem like a real thing that it just isn't. And inevitably, these systems do break down. Um, you know, he did some cherry picking, he showed the best things and, and so forth. Um, but that's almost not the point. The point is not so much the errors, it's just the basic mechanism. It's just predicting next words. And that is not what sentience is about. No, but some of the stuff that we heard from Blake, I'm, I'm just going to relay it. And, and I'm curious what you think, because some of that stuff that we heard from him indicates that that Lambda, it, you know, had more capabilities than we're talking about here. For instance, Lambda asked, Blake to build it a body so it could take the mirror test where like the mirror test, you know, the mirror test where you hold the bottle above your head and whether you look up or look at the mirror, that's a determination of your intelligence. And then there was also this moment where Blake um, wanted to pressure test its rules. This isn't something that you would do with the spreadsheet. One of the rules that it had was that you can, um, it, it could not privilege one religion over another. And so Blake then said that he told Lambda he was going to pressure test it. And we said, okay, if you have to, kept on telling it how terrible it was, and then said, what religion should I, should I convert to? And then Lambda said, Christianity or Islam, despite the fact that it had rules not allowing it to um, privilege a religion over another. So when you hear this stuff, I, you know, I'm curious what your response is to it. Um, and, and again, like maybe this is a good moment to go back to the question of what would it take for a chatbot then to, to show enough that you would say, okay, this is sentient. In order for me to think a chatbot is sentient, it would have to represent itself and the world and things about that in a way that it could reflect on them and do something with that. And this mm-hmm. system just isn't doing it. It's just predicting next words. And again, like unless you really think hard about how many words are in a trillion words of training, you don't realize that, for example, anything that you want to talk about is probably in some damn Reddit conversation already. And it's probably drawing from that. You know, a real sentient system, if it said something like, I like to play with my friends and family, would have something in mind about what its friends and family are. That's part of what being sentient is, is when you think a thought, it's related to something in the world. Um, Some philosophers will call that intentionality. 
there is none of that in this system. It's just a potent illusion. Um, you know, er- earlier in AI, there was a system called Eliza in 1965. And all it did was keyword matching, but it sometimes fooled people. People started, it was set up as a therapist and it would do very primitive matching stuff. Like if you said something about your girlfriend, it would ask you to tell you more about your family. If you said problems, it would say, can you tell me more about that? And so, you know, it's easy for a person to see a small evidence of what looks like humanity and ascribe humanity to that thing, right? Our Evolutionary ancestors did not have to deal with the problem of discriminating between machines and people that did not arise. And so what our brains really uh, evolved to do, among other things, was to find conspecifics that we could mate with and to rule out those who are not conspecific. So um, we're very good in general at telling other biological creatures, do they belong to our species or not? But there was no, you know, there's no machinery in our brains innately to tell us the difference between a, a person and a machine. And what happens is that in evolutionary perspective, anything that could talk was probably a person, right? Other, you know, mm-hmm. worry about parrots a little bit. Um, so <laughs> we, we don't have machinery in our brain. So um, a skilled person can actually find a lot of problems with these systems. So somebody who is trained as I am in the cognitive sciences um, you know, compose problems and find cases where these systems will break down and so forth. But it's not something that like an amateur can do. Amateurs are easily fooled. The remarkable thing about the Blake Lemoyne case is, at least to some degree, he's an expert. He's an engineer at Google. He's a Google engineer. Yeah. You would expect him to know better. You have to also look at his history. He's been talking about like robot rights for a long time. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. an old YouTube of him like five years ago. And so, Worth. He he had had a will to believe. He wanted to believe. Um, I think that that this system was sentient and are so good at mimicking language, human language that you know you can talk yourself into it. But it's just not how the system works. It's not relating something to the world. It's just predicting next words. Interesting. Okay. One of the things that I kind of wonder about this is you know how does again like. I, I understand your your perspective on what sentience is, but like one of the thoughts I've had in, in reading about it, speaking with Blake, is what are humans if not for you know intelligent machines trained on you know many 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 terabytes of historical data? So where do we draw the difference? Because- we are intelligent machines, but we're a very different sort of machine, um, and it goes back to our trying to represent entities in the world and to reason upon them and to act upon them and so forth. It, mm-hmm. It's just a different set of computations that that we're trying to do. I am in no way arguing that it is not possible to build a sentient machine. Um, I don't think we know how to do it. And I don't think we're clear enough on what it would consist of, but I'm not making the argument that it's impossible. I'm just looking at how this system works and that's just not what it does. Right. I mean, here's another way to think about it. A lot of sentience talk is talk about consciousness and a lot of what we talk about is really self-reflection when we talk about consciousness. There's a general problem here that there are many terms, they're fuzzy, they're not well-defined and so forth. But but part of it is about when we reflect on ourselves, we're reflecting on ourselves in a world, um, in our relation to that world. I'm thinking about, am I making clear enough answers to you? That's part of like my self-awareness mm-hmm. circuit. And am I convincing so far, so good. you or not? Um, <laughs> you know, maybe you're not completely convinced and I'm disappointed and I'm trying to think how to make you more convinced and so forth. But, but these are with respect to constructs about the world. 
So I have a construct of you. I don't think we met before, um, but we've seen each other's name around the internet or whatever. And so, you know, here's this person, he's doing a podcast, he's got a good audience. And so, you know, for me, it's like, I could get my message out. And for you, he's an interesting guy. And so like, we have all this like model of each other and why we're doing this. And, you know, you know that I'm sitting in this room in this newly renovated house that has a hole in it. And so you know some <laughs> things about me and you can reason about them. Like you wouldn't be totally surprised if now my roof leaked on me ha- having been told this other stuff, or, you know, about the problems with my new house. So we have all of these ideas and then you reflect like, is that funny? You know, should we cut that from the, the scene? Did it work? Did it not work? Is it worth the trouble of editing? You know, where's this going to leave me in my life? You're reflecting all the time on the things that you hear, how they relate to your knowledge about the world. And that's part of what consciousness is. And maybe some of it's like this meta higher level, like you think, am I thinking about this the right way or something like that? This system's just not doing that. It just isn't. Like there's no part of the system that represents that the topic that we have right now is this, that the friends that I mentioned are these, that the family I mentioned are these. The closest thing I could come up with in that paper in some ways was that it's a little bit like a sociopath, right? A sociopath would um, tell you in conversation, you know, read the room be like, they've asked me what I like to do with myself. Well, if I were in one environment, I might say, what I like to do is play basketball but I'm not in a sports crowd. So I think what I'll say is I like my friends and family, even though in truth, I have no friends and family because I shot them all, right? I'm a sociopath. Um, but I'll say that anyway, even though, you know, I don't have, I don't like my friends and family, um, mm-hmm. right? And you just make it up. And this system is kind of like that because it's everything it says is just made up, um, but it's just not doing it for the same reasons. The sociopath is doing it because the sociopath wants you to like them so that they can get some power or leverage or, or whatever. And this system, all it does is predicts next words and sentences. And the astonishing thing is that humans like so much to please each other that they often affirm what they do and, um, and so forth. So you get really weird cases like GPT-3, which is one of Lambda's cousins. If you say, um, I think I'd like to commit suicide, it might say, I think you should. Because it's so right. common in the statistics of predicting next words for people to say, I think you should, whatever, you know, half-assed thing you might have in mind, your friends are like, I think you should. So you look in this or database. May, or maybe and, the AI has come to a different ethical judgment about suicide. But it hasn't though, right? Like it can feel that way, but and you could build an AI system that makes ethical judgments. And I think that's a really interesting question, but a, a good system that made ethical judgments would, for example, be able to represent the fact that if you committed suicide, you would no longer be alive. It should be able to represent the fact that your family members would probably be disappointed if you had any and so forth, that, that there would be like insurance to work out or, you know, could think about all of the consequences. This is just spitting out the words I think you should without any idea what any of those consequences are. And I mean, that's what makes it reckless. Like you, you could put these systems into advice, medical advice, giving chatbots, and they will merrily give you advice. And a lot of it will be bad advice and it will be unreflected upon bad advice. It will be given because people say these words frequently and not because it has reasoned through that it might be ethical. So, I mean, mm-hmm. a human could have a deeper conversation and say, well, you know, why do you want to commit suicide? Are, are, are you having a medical problem? Is it an unresolvable medical problem? Have you talked to anybody about this and could, could, you know, do that 
sort of chain things. And, and maybe you could convince them that in your particular case, you know, suicide really is the right answer. But this system hasn't done any of that. It just walks in cold and says, I think you should. It doesn't even know who the you is that it's talking to. And it doesn't care. It just knows that these words follow these other words. It's so shallow. It's too shallow for me to possibly ascribe sentience to it. It doesn't, it, the sentience is to be aware of some stuff and it's not aware of any stuff. Again, my watch is aware of some stuff. So my right. watch is, again, a little bit more sentient than land is. Interesting. I mean, Gary, you've written that the Wright brothers didn't build a bird, right? They did. So the way that that we built something artificial that could fly looks very different from the way that it looks in nature. Well, it's very different, very different, but not entirely different. Like there's an interesting intermediary middle there. A lot of people run that argument <clears throat> in the wrong way. And they say, airplanes aren't like birds. And so we have nothing to learn from nature. And that's not right either. You know, they, they figured out some stuff about flight control by lot, watching a lot <laughs> yeah, of birds. Right. So, you know, in, in the case of AI, I don't expect that if we ever get to so-called artificial general intelligence, which would be sort of like the Star Trek computer, you can ask it any question and get a trustworthy answer. I don't expect that to work just like in human intelligence, but I suspect that it will borrow some things from human intelligence or have something similar. So I'm pretty confident that we'll have models of the world, internal ideas about how the world works. Um, I don't see how to build an AI without it. So there'll be some things borrowed from people and some things like you don't want to do your arithmetic like a person, right? I mean, people are terrible at arithmetic. And so, you know, you don't want your system to forget to carry the one, you know, in a, a long arithmetic problem. So we'll borrow some things and not others. Right. But I guess when it comes to assessing whether AI is intelligent, how, how like it, can look metallic for you know what i'm trying to say like it can it doesn't need to be why does it need to mimic our our awareness of the world versus be a seemingly intelligent conversation partner in your perspective well because the, the problem is, um is one of reliability so okay. i don't think it has to yeah. have the same models of the world so you know my gps system doesn't have the same model of location as i do it, it relies mainly on um, satellite receivers that I don't even have any sensation to pick up, right? It triangulates between a bunch of satellites and I don't navigate that way. I mostly use landmarks and my GPS system doesn't give a shit about those landmarks, which in some ways makes right. it more reliable because if the landmarks change, <laughs> yeah. it, I was going to say a feature or a feature or a bug of, or, or the, a definitely characteristic of humans you can't argue with is that we're unreliable. We're unreliable, but I mean, I mean, the shocking thing is that as bad mm -hmm. as we are at driving, we're still better than the best machines. Hmm. For now. For now, that will change eventually, but it probably doesn't take longer than I think a lot of people recognize. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are some, some ways in which people are more reliable, some in which machines are. The way in which we're more, we are more reliable right now is in understanding, let's say, an article that we read or a movie that we watch understanding the motivations of characters, why they're doing things like in the world of understanding physical objects and human relationships with one another, things like that. We're just far ahead of the machines in arithmetic. We're mm -hmm. way behind in chess. We're way behind. So you do have to look at these things domain by domain. One of the worst mistakes I think people make is they think AI is like a one 
purpose, or sorry, one size fits all universal solvent that can do anything. And the reality is it's a bunch of different tools. Some of them work really well. Some of them don't work really well. There are problems that have been really well solved and problems where we have no idea, um, have made any progress in 50 years. So it's this really mixed bag and some of it's better than people and some of it's not. Yeah. Okay. I want to get to some of the dangers of this type of stuff in the second half, but let's just close out this half with a question that I read on your Substack from a commenter that I found interesting. I think the commenter said something like, how do we know that, that humans are sentient for trying to do all this work, trying to figure well, out. In philosophy, we call that yeah. the problem of other minds. And ultimately all we really have is ourselves, right? So mm. I don't know for sure that you're sentient and at some point, <laughs> um, I'm going to say 30 years from now, we'll be able to make machines that do podcast interviews. And I won't really know. Don't really know mm-hmm. if you're a person fake or you know machine faking me out or whatever at some point it, at the moment we have no independent test of like whether somebody else is conscious like there's all field of consciousness we'd like to answer questions like is a rock sentient or conscious and you know most of us would say no there are some philosophers that would say a rock has a little tiny bit of consciousness or maybe sentience i've never heard anybody quite make the argument that way, but it wouldn't be too far a leap from some positions I've heard. So there's this idea of panpsychism where there's a little bit of consciousness everywhere. Um, I'm not a big fan of it, but like there are mm. respected philosophers that try to make arguments like that. My point is we don't have an independent meter for that. So mostly I ascribe sanctions to you because you do the kinds of things that I think I might do. They, they say, you, know, you know, I have my own internal representation and whatever. It's not completely convincing. Like, you know, I, I wish they were a better tool. And some people play around with like, you know, different brain signals you might measure. You know, there are interesting questions about like, how do I tell if somebody's had an accident, they can't talk anymore, how much is still going on there? And there are ways of, of looking at brain scans to try to make guesses about that. But none of them have a full like independent grounding. There's, there's no like gold standard. Like here is this, you know, pound of gold that we can use as a universal reference. And we, um, or, you know, we can describe a second in terms of how far the earth travels on this orbit. There's no independent reference there. And so you know, philosophers call this the problem of other minds. I think it's hmm. for now an unsolved problem. Gary Marcus is with us. He's the author of Rebooting AI and founder of Geometric Intelligence, which was acquired by Uber. Uber. Lots of great stuff. You can find his writing on garymarcus.substack.com. We'll be back right after this short break. Then we're going to talk about the dangers of what might come with AI that can convince people that it's sentient, but is not. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. 
I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back here for the second half with Gary Marcus. He's the author of Rebooting AI. It's a great book. You should go pick it up. Also the founder of Geometric Intelligence, AI company that Uber acquired. Gary, let's talk a little bit about the hype situation here. So we know now, let's at least take the the notion that AI can fool a Google engineer into thinking it's sentient. There's a lot of people who don't spend time, who don't, who aren't well-read. Um, I would say almost everybody, you know, aren't, aren't experts on these systems. If the AI can now convince somebody who is an expert that it is sentient, what's going to happen when we're going to be living in a world where you have, you know, these systems run amok? Um, is there, is there, you know, you you gave the example in the first half about, you know, health AI may be telling someone to commit suicide. Is there immediate danger here? And, and what is, what is the um, concern you have with folks who say that this stuff is, is here, that artificial general intelligence is here now present um, and among us? Well, there were a couple of different questions. Um, artificial general intelligence is not here. Like the, that one, in my view, is mm-hmm. not controversial. To be artificial general intelligence would mean that a system can encounter problems it hasn't encountered before and come up with sensible solutions. Um, that would be critical to artificial general intelligence as opposed to artificial intelligence. So you get a narrow AI, like mm-hmm. a chess computer. We already have things like that that do a particular problem. We just don't have systems that you can confront with a novel problem that hasn't seen before and expect a reasonable answer. It just doesn't exist yet. Um, the next question, part of what you asked is like, should we be worried right now? If, if so, what we sh- should we be worried about? It's kind of like the wild West out there. People can put up any piece of software they want and there's almost no um, before the fact regulation. So mm-hmm. if you want to, I don't know, make a military drone or something like that. There's a lot of regulation before you can put something in the air. If you want to introduce a new pharmaceutical to fight COVID, you have to do tests before you can commercialize it, right? Um, Phase one, phase two, phase three testing, all all that kind of stuff. If you want to put out an AI system that does something that could potentially lead you to commit suicide, for example, no regulation on that. Um, prospectively at all. There's some antecedently mm-hmm. in the sense that if you do something bad, you make some bad software, um, somebody could sue you for liability. But it's only after the fact. There's really very little. There's a little action in Europe. But essentially, there's there's no regulation. So if one night somebody at the Tesla factory got mad and bro- broke in to the system and decided to hack it in a way similar to something that did just happen in Russia the other day, they could do that. There's no law that 
says what's going on. So the thing that happened in, in Russia was with different technology, but somebody managed to get all the taxis uh, to go to a single place at the same time, which created all of these. Um, it, it wasn't an autonomous vehicle thing, but they just like mm-hmm. put out fake requests or something. So all the taxi drivers converged on this one square in Russia, which caused these you know massive traffic jams. So you have to like get them all out of there mm-hmm. once you you know figure out. I mean, I don't know if it was a practical joke or it was done out of malice or protest or, or why it was done, but um, you could easily, for example, um, if you were malicious make all driverless cars converge on a point or, you know, small set of points or something like that. And then, you know, if you had a bad actor inside of, let's say Tesla wanted to do that, and then they put it over the air, there's nothing to stop that except after the fact you discover it didn't work. And then, you know, you deal with the consequences, um, which is not unlike kind of the situation with cybersecurity and, and so forth. We we're, were like really running behind the malicious actors in, in many um, domain. So like, you know, you see these crypto heists and stuff all the time and mm-hmm. <clears throat> the major companies spend from what I understand, massive amounts of money on, you know, payouts, to cyber criminals and, and stuff like that. So, so, you know, AI is just software and software is not all that tightly regulated. So that's the first thing to realize is like anybody kind of put out anything and there's some after the fact mechanisms, if it doesn't work out, but not a lot of stuff in advance to say, Hey, like, have you made a safety case here? Have you proven that you could actually use this reliably? There's very little software where people um, have proven that things are reliable. You need to do that when you design a plane. So there are actually standards around that. Um, So like the Dreamliner, I think had a lot of software verification in the process, but in general, software verification is not required in AI. So that's the first thing that's like background context. Anybody can do anything kind of at any time. It's the wild west. Yeah. Before you get on to point two, one of the things that blew me away after, so I tried out Dolly with open AI folks. And then I was like, well, there are, you're being very cautious about the type of images that people can release here. But there's going to be copycats that will not be cautious at all. And all the problems you're trying to prevent are going to end up being real problems for us pretty soon. And and really in quick succession, it was amazing how many different Dolly copycats came out there. And and now all those things you could do. That's right. And I think stable diffusion is is you know the, the flavor of the month and is pretty open. And um, yeah. I don't think any of those have solved the problem of like, if you put in doctor, you get a white male. They all have, I mean, they may have solved that mm-hmm. particular one, but you change it slightly and say, you know, all entomologists will get white males. Yeah. So, so like nobody's, for example, solved that, that problem. I'm sure that it's pretty easy to get them to do things that are, you know, graphic and gory and maybe would make a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, so, so there's no regulation around any of that or hardly any regulation around any of that. There are copycats right now. There's really only one technology that people are using it looked at at an abstract level, which is use a massive data set with one or two common kinds of algorithms and predict what's going to happen next based on the data set that you've got, or, you know, draw the thing that's closest in what we call a space of images, um, Hmm. the text you've got. Um, And so at some level, they're actually not that hard to copy, um, which is the point that you're making, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like, Dolly has some brand new intellectual insight that allows it to happen or Dolly to um, relative to the rest of the playing field. Like everybody kind of understands 
the technology that we're talking about. It's mostly a matter of getting together the data set. Once somebody realizes, hey, you can do this with this kind of data set, somebody else can get a similar data set, they can do the same thing. So these particular technologies are not that easy to protect intellectually. I'm not saying you should. I think there's reason, you know, you might want them to be open, but whether or not you want them to be open, right, they get right. copied. That, that's okay. the reality. So there may be some major conceptual advance in AI. And I think Jan LeCun, who I've notoriously gotten uh, yeah. into some, some battles good with, back and on, forth with him on, on Twitter um, and so forth. He runs uh, artificial intelligence for Meta, for those listening. I was actually on the show a couple of months back. So. He's a chief AI scientist at Meta. Um, you know, he and I disagree about a lot. It's kind of famous. People mm-hmm. write, you know, Clash of the Titans things whenever he and I get, get it, mix it up. But we actually agree that these systems don't really solve the problems, the larger problems of artificial intelligence, um, and that we need some paradigm shifts here. The, there's somebody else I got in debate about whether we need a paradigm shift. Um, uh, some people know him as Slate Star uh, Codex or Scott Codex. Alexander. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry. And, you know, he tried to make an argument that maybe we don't need a paradigm shift, but it was a softly said argument. Um, Lacuna and I agree, we need some paradigm shifts. And when those paradigm shifts come, maybe only a few people will have them and there'll be some technologies built around them that are restricted. Um, but right now, you're right. Most... Most of these new technologies can be copied relatively quickly. You know, OpenAI introduces something, and Google's got a better version four weeks later, and maybe public um, consortium, you know, has something very similar another few weeks after that. So that, that that's background, and it's relevant background to to the malice question that you're just talking about. So, like um, for a while, OpenAI kept GPT-3 kind of under lock and key. They didn't let me as a scientist use it. In fact, I requested access and then give it to me. Yeah. I'm still waiting for the Dolly access. So yeah, I think Dolly yeah. access is relatively starting to open loose, um, but it doesn't even matter now. You can use stable diffusion and you will get, you know, I- essentially the same kind of uh, results. So for many purposes, it, do- it doesn't even matter anymore that it's closed. So the possibility that bad actors will get their hands on these things is, is very high. So Meta released something that's very much like GPT-3 out there in the general public. And so one of the um, specific cases that I worry about most is actually misinformation. So systems like GPT-3 and Lambda and so forth are really good at making up text that sounds like a human wrote it, but they have no concept of what they're talking about. They're not bound to the truth. And if your job is to make up lies, that's not such a bad technology, right? So if what you want to do is to put out like 10,000 versions of something on Twitter, something untrue and find one that sticks, then misinformation as a service, which is how they might call it in the tech industry, is a pretty damn powerful technique. And if it hasn't been widespread, it soon will be. And I suspect it's already, you know, I mean, the troll farms aren't going to, publish what software they're using, but um, it would be foolish of them not to be making use of this. And so Meta's Meta's chatbot also is like pretty amazing. It immediately started making like pretty uh, next level critiques of Facebook saying, you know, even if you're trying to connect people, you cannot be like a public good if as a capitalist enterprise and Mark Zuckerberg is just doing it for the money. Some amazing stuff came out of its model. Right. Some of which was hilarious. Yeah. It's also a reminder of what we were talking about in the first part of the conversation. So it's not as if the system reasoned through right. kind of 
surveillance capitalism and power <laughs> and Zuckerberg and the ownership structure of Meta and the you know special shares that he has, which would be really interesting if you know you could get a system to do that. Instead, it was just, you know that's some line from somebody in Reddit. Maybe it's put in some synonyms and stuff like that. But some human basically mm-hmm. came up with those ideas, and then they churn through this machine. There's um, embeddings give you synonyms and stuff like that, but you know they weren't original thoughts. A lot of people have actually thought that there's you know a lot of hypocrisy in in Meta and how Zuckerberg runs things. But it was hilarious that it came out of the system. The other thing that it shows is it's almost impossible to corral these systems. So I, I wrote a sentence somewhere the other day um, about how these systems, large language models, basically what we're talking about, are like bulls in a china shop. They're awesome, powerful, and reckless. Like you can't actually control them. So like Meta didn't want to release something that would make them look like they had egg in their face and embarrass them and so forth. Um, they wanted to help with open access science, which is to the, you know, their credit. Um, but they were, they didn't have a way to corral the system such that it would produce only things that were sort of consonant with the, um, the yeah. goals of the company. Right. And if Meta can't make its system, keep its mouth shut about Zuckerberg, well, now imagine this in the medical context and you're, you're trying to use this stuff to give people advice. It's just not reliable enough. It's going to, you know, tell you that vaccines are bad because a lot of people said that in the database and it shouldn't be telling you that vaccines are bad, or it's going to um, tell you that it's okay to commit suicide. I mean, that's a real example um, from someone experimenting with the system at a company called Nabla, trying to see uh, what these systems do. It's not a, well, it's hypothetical in one sense and not another. I mean, the system actually ge- generated that. Um, we don't have any way of controlling that right now. We don't have any way of making these systems reliable in that way. So in the art domain, I'm not sure it's a problem. Somebody types in a prompt and out comes something with, you know, knives and blood and the artist doesn't like it. Um, the artist being the human who's running the system to go back to our earlier part of the conversation. That's fine. They just don't put it out there on the web. Um, but if you are interacting directly with a chatbot that gives you bad ideas, it's problematic. Um, I guess I'm violating an embargo if I say this thing. I, I'm trying, trying to think about it the right way to say Do it. it. <laughs> um, I, I, I was asked to make a prediction about next year. It'll, it'll be out uh-huh. soon enough. And okay. about AI. And I, I went dark. Um, the, the prediction that I made is basically that there will be a death tied to a large language model in the next year. And my reasoning was these systems already um, have, you know, told people to commit suicide. They've said that genocide is okay. Um, they're also capable of making people fall in love with them. And Lemoyne basically fell in love with, with Lambda there. And they may yeah, withdraw. He said, he said he was only as he said he was just a friend. He had love for it as he would for a friend, but not We're just friend. friends. Yeah. I heard yeah. that one before. <laughs> Um, sure. Now, you know, someone like Lemoyne, maybe not him specifically, mm-hmm. but who developed that intimate relationship with the machine. And mm-hmm. then I don't know, discovered that the machine didn't really care about them or whatever, um, you right. know, might commit suicide. It would have to be a fragile person. I don't think Lemoyne yeah. is fragile in, in that way, but no, Lemoyne said he, he views Lambda as a friend that he will interact with again, just like he has many friends who you speak with and you don't see for a while. And then, right. But now, now imagine a more needy person a little bit less savvy and, you know, so, so there are multiple routes by which these things I think might actually cause a death in, in the next year. Now, because they're now 
scaled out so everybody can use them. There's going to be way more of these chatbots, be way more systems like Replica, which is, I think, made fairly careful with some other technology on top. Um, there'll be, you know, rep- reckless knockoffs of that. Um, it's just an accident waiting to happen or a series of accidents waiting to happen. Gary, isn't it interesting that in the first half of this conversation, we spoke all about how the AI is not sentient and is simply repeating patterns. And in the second half, we've spoken about even so, this is a threat to people's lives. What does that tell you about where this technology is heading? What does that say about the nature of this tech? I mean, we are certainly going to have more and more technologies that fool people into thinking that they're smarter than they are. And I worry about that a lot. So I'm actually more worried about current AI than future AI. Mm -hmm. I think that future AI will be better and will be less reckless. And the current AI just doesn't know what it's doing. And, you know, there's certain narrow cases where it's fine. So, I mean, it turns out it is actually AI when my um, phone gives me directions. That, that's actually a set of AI techniques to do search and, and whatever. And I'm not too worried about that. Although there are cases I had a GPS system tell me to go off road in Iceland and I really should not have done what it and <laughs> decided pretty quickly that it was a bad idea. What was the uh, conclusion of that situation? Uh, uh, backing down very carefully. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. It was, it was uh, don't listen to this without four wheel drive and probably not even then. Um, or, or that not all shortcuts, um, you know, are what they appear. Anyway, so, I mean, these <laughs> systems are not perfect, but, you know, it's true. If I follow that road, I, I'd be able to get from point A to point B, but the system, you know, might've realized that I, I didn't have the, the stomach to go that particular route. Anyway, or, sorry. So a system like that, most of the time works, it's been pretty well debugged, but a, none of these chatbot systems are well debugged. We, nobody knows how to debug them in fact. And so, um, both the problem with GPT-3 and, and with um, driverless cars is we don't actually have a methodology even for debugging it. Most of the debugging at this point in the, um, dry, the, sorry, the navigation systems is like learning that this road is not actually open, updating a database. And then as soon as you add that fact to your database, the system will stop sending people down that road. And so we know how to debug it. We don't know how to tell GPT-3, stop telling people to commit suicide. And if people ask in a slightly, you know, you might have it program a rule. If the word suicide comes up, then do this or that. Then people will say it in a different way and the system won't recognize it. So, you know, you, somebody says, I'm thinking of ending it all by jumping off a bridge. And if you don't have a filter that is looking for the word, you know, jump off the bridge and just for the word suicide, it's not going to be broad enough. So we don't have a systematic way to debug things. This same thing has happened w- with driverless cars. Like there are all these, what we call outlier cases and you can enter them one at a time, but it's, it's, there's so many of them that that's not really good enough. So my favorite recent outlier case is um, somebody summoned their Tesla, right? You press a button on your phone and your Tesla comes across a parking lot to you. Only they did this when they were at an um, airplane trade show on a runway, basically. So they summoned hmm. their Tesla and it ran into a three and a half million dollar jet, you know, just oh straight God. in. You can find it on YouTube and put on your show uh-huh. notes. Um, and it's an outlier in the sense that it was not trained on jet airplanes. Cause most of the time when Tesla's drive around and they collect data, there aren't any <laughs> airplanes on the road. Cause they're not usually hmm. at airports. Um, there's just this endless string of these and humans deal with them differently. When you are, on an airport runway, if you should ever find yourself 
uh, at one of these trade shows and you see the plane, you'll be like, plane, big, expensive. I probably shouldn't drive into it. So you'll be reasoning <laughs> about the properties that you know about the airplane. And this system doesn't reason. It doesn't use logic to say if A and B is basically just using like a library of videos and it's not in the library of videos and being a little bit crude and oversimplified. Mm -hmm. And if it's not in his library of videos, it doesn't know what to do with it. And there's no systematic methodology for debugging it. You know, if you like write a little computer program to, I don't know, predict numbers in a sequence, you're like, okay, it didn't work here. Maybe this line of code is wrong. Maybe I'll fix it. But you can't do the same thing when the way your program works is it looks in this big database. So what people actually do is they make the big, the database bigger and they pray. That's basically what our methodology is right now. Right. Bigger, bigger database and pray for the best. Scale is the only thing that matters. Mm -hmm. Scale is the only thing that matters. That's not really a methodology that, that's getting us to reliability. And so mm. we have all these systems. Mercifully, most of them are in limited context right now. So like there aren't that many of them in, you know, as we're recording this in September of 22, that many of these chatbots in production. But wait a minute, Facebook just or Meta just released the tool so anybody can do this. How much do you want to bet that, you know, this time next year, there are like a hundred or a thousand chatbots on the Apple app store driven by this reckless bull in a China shop technology something's going to go wrong. Like it, it's just a recipe for um, error. And nobody knows, you know, how to make their chatbots constrained and not toxic and not spew misinformation. Like we don't have an answer for yeah. that. I wrote the first story about uh, Microsoft's chatbot, Tay, and uh, I had pinned it to my profile, went to sleep in California, woke up the next day and had all these mentions on Twitter about how I might want to take my uh, my story down. And I was like, well, what the hell happened? And they're like, well, Tay's a Nazi. And I looked and I was like, oh shit, Tay is actually a Nazi. This is bad. And Tay was not a Nazi when you went to bed, right. when you posted I went your to bed, story. It was a cute, fun chatbot. I will closely related to Shao Ice yeah. in China, which yes. worked fine. You know, it, then it met the American internet. <laughs> and Things went and downhill. then it meant the, I don't yeah. know if everybody in your crowd, in your audience knows that um, anybody who doesn't know Tay should look it up. It, it, it's not clear that we're fundamentally in a different place than Ben. Right. That seems like we are given. Fundamentally in the same place. Yeah. yeah. I mean, exactly. Seems like we're in the same place. Exactly. Despite all of the hype about, you know, we're so yeah. close to, to solving AI or whatever. We're not, we're facing yeah. the same problems and today what was that 2016 15 that sounds right yeah yeah Probably so i think six, 15 or 16 yeah yeah can i ask you one more question before we hop so um we've been talking you know basically since i started covering anything having to do with artificial intelligence the big worry has been that we're going to get into one of these hype cycles where ai is going to get overhyped under deliver and then there's going to be a pullback of research uh funding leading us into what people call an ai winter it seems today, even though it's imperfect and, you know, let's say not sentient, AI is delivering in ways that, um, you know, are pretty remarkable. The fact that AI can go, just bring a full circle, the fact that AI could go and win an art contest uh, based off of a prompt, the fact that it can fool a Google engineer uh, or, you know, potentially fool a Google engineer thinking it's sentient to be that adept in conversation. It seems like we're, we are not at risk of having, you know, another one of those hype cycles where we have a pullback because the AI is delivering in the way that it is right now. What's your thought on it? I, I don't know. 
is the first thing I'll say. Like, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I think that, you know, the, the Dolly kind of image synthesis stuff is really cool. It's definitely mm-hmm. going to have an impact in the art world. You know, there'll be video versions of it at some point, and, and that's going to Which help. is just boggles the mind with that it's one. It kind of boggles the yeah. mind. And so there's that. On the other hand, there are things that have been promised that probably aren't going to work out and not work out soon. So chatbots really are hard to rein in. They're higher stakes depending on what you use them for. So if, if you just use them for chit-chat, maybe it's okay, but um, chatbots may not work out. You might remember Facebook M was going to be you know, universal um, assistant, and it was very much hyped by Wired and places like that, and then got canceled yeah. like a year later because it just didn't do what it was supposed to do, and they couldn't figure out how to get it to do it. I would also take the blame you know, on that one. I wrote some stories about it for BuzzFeed that I wish I could go back and revise. Okay. So, um, yeah. and I don't know if you, you know, want to take the hit on, on Google duplex, but Google duplex got no, a lot of that. I won't got, got a <laughs> lot yeah, of hype and, and it didn't, you know, materialize. Um, and you know, right now driverless cars kind of have a free pass, but it, we could get to a place four or five years from now where we still don't have driverless cars that are anything like what we call level five, where you can just type in where you want to go. And investors might be like, all right, enough is enough. This really isn't working out. Um, same thing on chatbots. So yeah, there's there's a ton of companies that are trying to use GPT's technology. I don't know any of them that are, you know, breakout successes. And so you get four years out, nobody can control them, and then people might be like, yeah, we were sold a bill of goods, um, people being investors. And so investors might pull back. And so that that could lead to an AI winter. Um, on the Dolly side, like, I don't know how much money is to be made there. And that's that's a material question for that kind of issue about winter or not. At least $300 at the Colorado State Fair. <laughs> ROI. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, the issue there is the software itself is relatively easy to copy. And so, you know, what's the business model? How much can right. you charge? And like, if, if it winds up that people don't want to pay more than 10 cents per illustration and there's like 20 players who are all doing this, and I don't know. There might be money there. Yeah. There might might not be. But in, in terms of like, you know, investors always want their 10x return and stuff like that. They, maybe they get it. Maybe they don't. I don't know. But you know, much more money so far has been put into the driverless cars. And I think a lot is being put into like customer service chatbots and stuff like that. And so, you know, it, it depends in the end on whether things that have been promised are delivered and how long it takes for them to be delivered um, and, and so forth. And I, I can't, I can't fully tell you that. What I can tell you is that AI could be doing a lot more than it is. We just passed the 67th anniversary of the field. And there's some things that we have always dreamt about, like having AI build better technology for science and medicine. And with the exception of, of AlphaFold, which is useful towards those problems, success has been limited. Mm. I think too much of the effort has gone to things like recommendation engines. And although I think the art stuff is cute, it's not getting at, I think, the deeper problems of how you get a machine to read a running text or watch a video or something like that and really read it with comprehension. And, you know, I I think the world would be a better place if we focused on those hard problems. Um, And I don't know if we will or we won't. Gary Marcus, thanks so much for joining. This was super fun. Thanks a lot for having me. Great to have you. So just a shout out, the book is called Rebooting AI, available everywhere. And people can go get your Substack at garymarcus.substack.com. 
Anything else? Thanks a lot. It was yeah. great. Okay, great. It was awesome. Thank you, Gary, for joining. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Nate Guatney, for doing the editing of the audio. Appreciate you as always. Thank you, LinkedIn, for having me as part of your podcast network. And thanks again to all of you for listening. We will be back next week with a new interview with Tech Insider or Outside Agitator. And we hope to see you then. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Big Technology Podcast. Thank you.